talked about supernatural living and what that meant like in a practical sense, right? Not going out and doing like the big stuff you read about in history and things like necessarily, but starting with the lions and the bears before you get to the giants, right? And seeing that that's how it's trained. The number one obstacle that I talked about was that we don't believe that we can do those things. A lot of us just don't believe that we can do supernatural things through Christ. Just like Peter walking on the water, he started to believe for a little bit that he could do what Jesus was doing, and then he took his eyes off him, he stopped believing that he could do it, and he began to sink, and Jesus said, why did you stop believing? Right? He's called us to do it, he's done it more so. But Jesus didn't just pop out of the womb and start raising the dead. He spent 30 years of his human life learning and growing and suffering and doing things by the Spirit. And it wasn't until he was, he was unleashed in the power of the Spirit for his full call mission that he starts doing the things we read about. And I wanted to talk about these things because getting down to the practical of it, I started talking about, hey, living supernatural means loving people who frustrate you. Right? The fruit of the Spirit is just that. It's fruit of the supernatural Spirit of God indwelling within you. You can live shallow forms and expressions of the fruit of the Spirit without the Spirit, meaning like someone who's not saved can, can still demonstrate some level of self-control. But it is coming from a very different source and place and can be easily shattered with enough conflict. But when you're walking in the fruit of the Spirit, meaning like here's the proof and demonstration and evidence that the living God dwells inside of you, that stuff is unshakable. That is the stuff where the Spirit is empowering you to do this. And that's supernatural living. Supernatural living is living for something bigger than yourself, a greater cause beyond this. And I wanted to touch on the most sensitive, the hardest, the thing that sits right at the center of all this with no apologies and no shame about it, but we are going to talk about money. Okay, now I could go into a thousand qualifications because I have 15 thoughts and fears and concerns going on in my mind. Who's sitting out here right now listening to this? If I say it this way, this person might hear it wrong and get offended. If I say it this way, this person might hear it wrong and get offended. If I say this, the wrong thing might come across. Maybe this touches on old wounds from abuse this person's experienced. Hey, all those are possible and likely. But my challenge to you is this. When you feel the, ugh, what a jerky thing to say. Oh, I've heard this before. That's abusive. Stop. Think. Record the scriptures that I referenced and go sit with the living God yourself. Read those scriptures and see what he says to you. You don't have to take my word for it. But I'm going to challenge your, your thoughts and the way you're thinking and maybe even some unthought things that have just sought, like underlying worldviews or just beliefs you've lived up according to. And I, my goal is to challenge that for this reason. I hope and pray that obstacles that are present to us walking in the fullness of knowing Christ and living in a supernatural reality can be removed either completely or partially through what I'm going to share. That's my goal, that's my heart. I believe that it's... Yeah, 
I don't even believe it. Jesus said it. But before I go into that, here's the title I came up with for the message. Cheerful giving, naturally supernatural life. Okay? So this is what I mean by that. Cheerful giving challenges everything our natural instinct is when it comes to provision, safety, security, and money. This message is about your heart and your mind, not about rules and regulations. Now, I never do this, but this is of utmost importance. Turn to your neighbor and say, this message is about your heart and mind. Not about rules and regulations. This is recorded. I am on record saying that. So if you interpret anything I say as other than that, it's on you. Okay? If you start slipping into some form of gross legalism or conviction and you're like, that, that's, I can think of exceptions. Well, great. Remember, exceptions only prove the rule. Right? If they didn't prove the rule, then they wouldn't be exceptions. They'd just be what they are. Matthew 6.24 starts off with this. No one can serve two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus said that in the midst of a whole chapter about supernatural trust for provision and for who God is. Now, he didn't say... You can't serve both God and food. You can't serve both God and family. You can't serve both God and relationships. You can't serve both God and hobbies. He said you can't serve both God and money. That's what he chose to pit as the diametric opposite to God in the choices we make. And then he went on to explain what he meant by that, which was, guys, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and don't worry about money and provision and the things you need, security, safety. Don't worry about where you're going to sleep, what you're going to wear, what you're going to eat. Don't do that. Do you understand? That is a command from Christ. Do not do that. Yet, at the center of a lot of our lives... That is our deepest motivation. And it's where we feel the deepest conflict. I'm going to just rattle off some Old Old Testament scriptures where God speaks about this idea of trust and giving. In Deuteronomy 8, 11-20, Be careful that you don't forget the Lord your God by failing to keep His commands, ordinances, and statutes that I am giving you today. When you eat and you're full and you build beautiful houses to live in, And your herds and flocks, they grow large. And your silver and gold multiply. And everything else you have increases. Like that's a picture of America and most of us in it. Be careful that your heart doesn't become proud and you forget the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt or the places when you didn't have those things. Out of the place of slavery. He led you through the great and terrible wilderness with its poisonous snakes and scorpions. A thirsty land where there was no water, and he brought water out of the flint rock for you. He fed you in the wilderness with manna, which your ancestors had not known. 
Listen to what he's calling them back to. He's saying, remember me in your wealth because I was there in your poverty and I still provided for you. You still never went without. When you needed water in a dry wilderness, I made it come from rocks. When you needed food in a barren desert, I made it just appear on the ground every morning for you. And he says, and I did this in order to humble and test you so that in the end, he might cause you to prosper. His goal in allowing us to go through these things is to cause us to prosper. But first, we have to prove ourselves faithful, trustworthy, and humble before him. You may say to yourself, my power and my own ability have gained this wealth for me. My hard work, my education, my ingenuity, my personality, my strategic thinking produced this wealth for me. But remember that the Lord your God gives you the power to gain wealth in order to confirm his covenant he swore to your ancestors as to you today. This is what it means to be humble, to recognize, like, guys, nothing you did got you to where you are. And it's only arrogance to think that it was your strength and strategy and smart and ability and education and drive and determination. Where God says, let me remind you that I'm the one who gave you the ability to gain wealth. You don't breathe without my thought on you. Deuteronomy 15.10, give to him and don't have a stingy heart when you give. And because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and everything you do. I want you to see this theme. There's times of verses where there's rebukes and corrections because of abuse. And there's times, most often, where there's this promise of provision beyond what you're thinking. And he's trying to open our eyes to see it. And that's why he's challenging. Don't give with a stingy heart. Because of this, the Lord your God wants to bless you in everything you do. 1 Chronicles 29, 12. Riches and honor come from you, and you are the ruler of everything. Power and might are in your hand, and it is in your hand to make great and to give strength to all. Proverbs 3, 9 through 10. Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first produce of your entire harvest. Then your barns will be completely filled and your vats will overflow with new wine. Look up what it means to honor and then say, how do I do that with my wealth? Malachi 3, 8 through 10. A lot of us have heard this and have used it in probably wrong and abusive ways, but listen to the heart of God communicating to his people. Will a man rob God? This is the prophet speaking as God to the people. Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. You ask, how do we rob you? He says, by not making the payments of the tithe and the contributions, you are suffering under a curse. Yet you, the whole nation, are still robbing me. Now remember, in the Old Testament law, there was a legal law requirement under God to give a tenth of your tithe to different aspects of what God had commanded them to give towards, and they had forgotten and they had stopped doing it. And God, through the prophet here, is challenging them to get back to it. And he says, bring the tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. And then he says, test me in this way, says the Lord of armies. I want you to, don't skip by this church. 
God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, just told his people, invited them to test him on his word. He is literally saying, if you don't believe me, I'm giving you permission to test me on this. Now, if I was God, I'd be like, believe me or I will squash you, you puny grasshoppers. How dare you even dare not to believe me? Matter of fact, forget the blessing. Just do it because I said so. Do you understand? Or maybe I'll make you push a giant boulder uphill for the rest of eternity. For all you Greek lore nerds. But he didn't. He says this. Because he wants us to know his faithfulness. He said, test me in this. Test me in this and watch what I do. See if I will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing for you without measure. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not ruin the produce of your land and your vine and your fields will not fail to produce fruit, says the Lord of armies. Then all the nations will look at you and consider you fortunate for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of armies. This is God saying, test me. And Malachi is where the Old Testament ends. So I want to give you some New Testament verses. And this is the flow of giving I looked at in Scripture when I was preparing this, right? What did God say from the beginning? He's been a generous God, promising blessing from the very beginning. All they had to do was trust Him and follow Him. And He promised He'd open up the storehouses of heaven and make them a nation that shines on a light like a hill. People would come to them because they saw the prosperity. The, the prospering of the people of God under God's rule. And that did happen under David and Solomon's rule. Rulers of nations traveled the earth to come and just see the splendor and prosperity of the land of the people of God. And you see that going through this throughout the Old Testament. And God reminding Israel that when you come into prosperity, here's human nature. You will want to grasp the security that that brings, and it will become a central focus to maintain that. And God is saying, do not do that. Do not forget that if you need water, I can make it come from a rock. If you need food, I can make it appear on the earth. The wealth was for the mission. To make you a people that shines like a light on a hill for the nations to come and see that I am God. So the New Testament comes. And one of the things Jesus says, Paul quotes him, or Luke quotes him specifically, it is better to give than to receive. We've heard that a thousand times. A lot of us think Aesop's fables gave that to us. You think it's funny, it's true. Most people don't know that's in the Bible. Just like, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Also credited to Aesop's fables. It's actually the scriptures. In Luke 12, 13 to 21, listen to what Jesus says about this topic. Because, as we know, our faithful Lord and Savior gets right to the point. This dude did not mince words when he was here with us, and he's still not mincing words with us now. He said, someone from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. 
And Jesus says, friend, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? Now, he knows he's the Lord of heaven and earth. But he's making a point. He said, he told them, watch out and be on guard against all greed. That's what he decides to respond with. He sees greed in this situation. And he says, be on guard against all greed, because one's life is not the abundance of his possessions. Then he said, let me tell you a parable to make my point. A rich man's land was very productive. He thought to himself, what should I do since I don't have anywhere else to store the abundance of my harvest? I will do this, he said. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones and store all my grain and my goods in the big ones. Then I'll say to myself, you have many goods stored up for many years. Take it easy, eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. Now I want you to stop. Did you hear anything wrong in that description yet? Anything in that description make your heart go, ooh, yeah, that's bad. Has anyone thought, oh, I have more money, I want to increase my savings, and then be like, oh, nope, not doing that. And anyone thought, hey, we're pretty comfortable right now. Let's go and enjoy ourselves. Like, we can take the family out to eat. This is great. We can go on a vacation. Let's sit back, eat, and enjoy ourselves. Anyone feel condemned by that yet? You're like, oh, I do that. Shoot. Let's keep reading. Because I don't think the point was that. I think he makes his point. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life is demanded of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be now? And he explains the parable and says, that's how it is with the one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. I want you to hear that again. God called this man a fool. And in his explanation... At least our best guess as we look at this, right, and read the rest of his things is this, that he was not rich towards God as well, or I would say, firstly. This man wanted to store up more so that he could feel secure, take it easy, kick back, and enjoy life. And God said, that man is a fool, and his life is demanded of him right now, and now what good is all the stuff you saved up? Who gets that stuff now? It's not you. Jesus is driving home in a point. Remember, this whole conversation started because the guy was saying, hey, tell my brother he has to split that inheritance with me. Luke 12, 22 to 34, a little bit more in that chapter. Matter of fact, it's the continuation. Says, then he said to his disciples, now remember, he's talking to the crowds and the people ask the question. Now he turns to the people he's most invested in, the people he's trying to reproduce to be like him because they're going to carry on these teachings and this work and this faith and this mission. And he says, therefore I tell you guys, don't worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear, for life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They don't sow. They don't reap. 
They don't have a storeroom or a barn or a 401k plan or a huge savings account. I added a couple bit there, ST3 translation. Yet God feeds them. Aren't you worth much more than the birds? Remember who he's talking to now. He's driving home the heart of the point to his most invested people. Can any of you add one moment to his life by worrying? If then you're not able to do even a little thing, why worry about the rest? Consider how the wildflowers grow. They don't labor or spin thread, yet I tell you not even Solomon in all his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass which is in the field today and thrown in the furnace tomorrow, how much more will he do for you, you of little faith, you who don't believe, don't strive for what you should eat and what you should drink, and don't be anxious. That's what the Gentile world does, and it's what they eagerly seek after and pursue. And your Father knows that you need them. But seek first His kingdom, and these things will be provided for you. Don't be afraid, little flock, because your Father delights to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give it to the poor, make money bags for yourself that won't grow old, an inexhaustible treasure in heaven, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. And then he sums it up with the heart of his teaching, where he says this, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so you see the whole passage, the parable, all the way down to this. He does two summaries, one for the crowd, and one for his closest people, and it's the same summary, right? It says, therefore, this is how it will be for those who are not rich towards God. And then for his disciples, he says this, because as he just compared the kingdom to human security over and over, he says, because where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. And your heart needs to be with the kingdom, with the Father who delights to give you the kingdom. If your heart's there, he will give it to you. It's his great delight to give us the supernatural kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. Yet there are obstacles, there are reasons he won't. And my suspicion, according to all the scriptures we're going to go through, is this, that our hearts aren't in his kingdom first. And so it can't be trusted with us. Because we're finding our security and our our purpose somewhere else. It keeps going. Matthew 6, 19-21 was, was Matthew's take on this. He repeats again, Do not store up your treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but serve it up, store it up in heaven where none of that happens. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We know that the Gospels have different takes on certain things. But here, they felt, both Matthew and Luke felt like this statement was so important they wrote it down word for word. Luke 21, 1-4, it says, He looked up and he saw the rich dropping their offerings into the temple treasury. Here's what, this is what, what a teachable moment looks like for Jesus with his disciples and the people that were around him. He looked up and saw the rich dropping the offerings into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow dropping in two tiny coins. Truly I tell you, he says to his disciples, now, this isn't in the scripture, but I feel like it's a safe, 
assumption here is that Jesus saw this and was moved by it and said, teachable moment. Truly, I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For all these people have put in gifts out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in all she had to live on. What's his point here? Like her two pennies didn't help Israel continue on with the mission. As much as the wealthy giving their surplus to help the temple run and the people be paid and the mission to go forward. But Jesus looks and says, this person gave far more than any of them. Because out of her lack, she gave in trust. She is believing the word of God. She is, she is testing the Lord based on his promise and saying, I will continue to give out of my lack. I will give everything I have left because you said to trust you. And this is rubber meat in the road. And she gave out of her need. Giving isn't for rich people alone. Giving is for Christ followers. Cheerful giving, abundant giving, sacrificial giving. And this is his point. He's getting to the point that, that this supernatural giving is coming from a place of trust in God. And this is where Jesus' continual stuff goes. So in Luke 6.38, Do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure. Now look, he didn't go on to elaborate with the other things. He just says, do not judge and you won't be judged. Don't condemn, you won't be condemned. Forgive, you'll be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure. Pressed down, shaken together, running over. It'll be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Big deal. But I want you to, to see this trend throughout all the things Jesus has said in the Old Testament and the New Testament is that when it comes to money, he always adds a reason and a blessing and a promise. He doesn't with don't judge. He just says, don't judge or you'll be judged. That's enough. Don't condemn. You won't be condemned. That's enough. Forgive and you'll be forgiven. That's enough. Give and it will be given to you. But I know how hard this is going to be for you guys. So let me elaborate on the promise that comes if you'll do this. Do you guys see that? This is why he compared... The, the, the choice between God and money. Not because money is anything more significant than anything else, but because money, or mammon, is the representation of where we would find security and, and trust other than God. And here's the third section on giving. Paul's teaching to the church now. So you have God putting into law his teachings on giving and giving generously and giving from a place of trusting God and giving to the mission and the people. And then you have Jesus coming and he strikes right at the heart, right? The heart and the thought process behind it. Always following up with promises of blessing. And then Paul says, let me teach the teachings of Christ to the church now so that they can live in this. 2 Corinthians 9, 6-7, he says this. The point is this. 
The person who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And the person who sows generously will also reap generously. Each person should do as he has decided in his heart. Not reluctantly, and not out of compulsion. Meaning no one's forcing you, no one's guilt-tripping you, no one's compelling you to do this against your will. And then he says why? Because God loves a cheerful giver. That should be enough for a person who's truly following Jesus. That one statement alone should be enough for you to radically change your entire life. God loves a cheerful giver? I want to be what God loves. He just told me straight out, point blank, what he loves and what brings joy to his heart. And that is my mission in this love relationship with the Lord. To be a cheerful giver because God loves it. But he doesn't. He goes on. He says this. That you give from your heart, not reluctantly or out of compulsion, because God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make every grace overflow to you. So that in every way, always having everything you need, you may excel in every good work. Here we go with even Paul qualifying his teachings on giving with blessing and promise and provision and follow-up. Paul elaborates in Philippians to a whole different church he's writing. He says this, And you Philippians know that in the early days of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. See, the churches were still immature. They had not, they had not been matured enough to get to this point, these pivotal, pivotal core teachings of Christ to, this, to, his, to his church. And Paul says, it was just you guys. For even in Thessalonica, you sent gifts for my need several times. Not that I seek the gift. Here, listen to the heart of the man of God teaching here. Not that I seek the gift that you sent me, but I seek the profit that is increasing to your account. This is coming from a man who understands the, the eternal realm and the supernatural and the teachings of Christ and has integrated it. He has integrated it so deeply that he has given his entire life and everything he's had. This is the man that said, I count everything that I have had and gained as rubbish in comparison to the great treasure of knowing Christ. And he's teaching the church the same thing. And he's demonstrating, he says, but I seek the profit that is increasing to your account, as any good shepherd should do. I want to stop from Scripture, take a break. I want to quote A.W. Tozer here. Listen to what he said. But really listen. How many, for, before I say this, how many of you guys have, uh, how many of you guys have investments and you've learned the value of return on investment and investing in good things versus not good things, things that are, are going to bring a return, right? Like the parable of the good steward. Right? They were given a part, and the master comes back and says, you increased it a hundredfold, this is awesome. Right? Versus the guy who didn't, stuck it in the ground, you wicked servant. Right? There's plenty of us in here who understand investment, and the value of investment. And those of us who have investments, you understand how inflation impacts that, and how to protect against inflation, because you want the value of your investment to endure and to last. Listen to A.W. Toad's quote, he says this, as base a thing as money often is, meaning it's like 
just worthless. Yet, it can be transmuted into everlasting treasure. It can be converted into food for the hungry and clothing for the poor. It can keep a missionary actively winning lost men to the light of the gospel and thus transmute itself into heavenly values. Any temporal possession can be turned into everlasting wealth. Whatever is given to Christ is immediately touched with immortality. Do you hear that? Let that knock the paradigm upside down a little bit. Let that take the human wisdom that we imply in our investments and what we give ourselves to in our time and our money and our possessions and our investments and our emotions and everything and let it flip it. Just that last line, whatever is given to Christ is immediately touched with immortality, meaning it gets changed from material wealth that moth will eat and rust can destroy into an untouchable, eternal, greatest return on investment you can make. And God says, the people with that perspective and that eternal paradigm are the people I want to entrust the kingdom with. The people I want to entrust those resources with. So why James says, you have not because you ask not. And then when you do ask and don't get it, it's because you ask amiss to spend it on your own pleasures. To create a more comfortable world for yourself where you don't need water from the rock anymore and you don't need food to show up in the ground anymore. That stuff's scary. And so I can't do this because it would impact my security and my safety. And again, remember, this is about the heart and the mindsets, not what you do or don't do, right? God wants to bless us with prosperity and wealth, but for the purposes of his mission, his eternal mission happening in this not eternal life that we're living right now. He wants to be able to touch everything he gives us with immortality, and we hide most of it in a place where it can't be. That's the challenge. 1 Corinthians 9, 11 through 14. If we have sown spiritual things for you, listen to what Paul's teaching. Again, the eternal versus the temporal. If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it too much if we reap material benefits and needs from you? If others have this right to receive benefits from you, don't we even more? Nevertheless, this was Paul speaking to one of the immature churches that he told the Philippian church does not give to him. And he said, Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. Instead, we endure everything so that we will not hinder the gospel of Christ. Don't you know that those who perform the temple services eat the food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the offerings of the altar. In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should earn their living by the gospel. Paul is teaching this to a church that doesn't give to try to establish in them the principle and the realities of the eternal investments versus the non-eternal investments. He is not trying to recruit a salary for himself when he's telling the church of Corinth. He says, no, 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 but I will not allow myself to be a stumbling block to you for the gospel, so don't worry about me. I'll take care of myself and my own people. 
You just listen to what I'm teaching you. In 1 Timothy 5, 17 through 18, he's telling Timothy, who he sent to establish the church. I'm wrapping up here, guys. The worship team's not even up here yet, so we're good. The elders who are good leaders are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. And it says the worker is worthy of his wages. This word honor here is where we get the word honorarium. It means money, payment. And it's saying that the elders among us in the body of Christ, especially those given to the work of building you up, are worthy of double honor. Again, he's trying to just show the value of of trying to get the church to recognize the value of what we receive from God and his gifts given to us. Instead of putting the value on the things that that moth can destroy, eat and rust destroy. Then he says this, I can testify that according to their ability, talking about the church in, in Philippi again, of their own accord they begged us earnestly for the privilege of sharing in the ministry to the saints. And not just as we had hoped, instead they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us by God's will. And lastly, 1 Timothy 6.17 no, I'm sorry. Second to lastly. Second Corinthians 8-7. Again, if you want my notes, text me, email me, I'll send them to you so you can read these scriptures. But it says this. Listen to what Paul encourages that same church, the church in Corinth, to excel in. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. In the same way that he's teaching the church to excel in love, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, he says, excel in giving. Don't just do it. Don't, don't pay a church tax. Excel in giving cheerfully to the Lord as you test him to see if he will not pour out the kingdom in your life. And in 1 Timothy 6.17, instruct those who are rich in the present age. And guys, that's almost everyone in here. Okay? Don't compare yourself to the richest in America. Think globally. Think the church global. Okay? And hear this message. Instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Instruct the wealthy to do what is good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and willing to share the things God has shared with them, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of what is truly life. Now, here's the wrap-up. Paul lived this life. And he says this, that, that Paul had learned a secret of contentment. And this is a secret that I absolutely believe we need to learn. We have to have this, or else we're never going to be in a place where the Lord can give us his kingdom. 
He says this, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly because once again, you renewed your care for me. And I want you to hear this in the context. He's talking to the church of Philippi that has so generously and sacrificially given because they eagerly wanted to play a part in the mission Paul was on of bringing the gospel to the Gentiles and to the lost and establishing the church of God on the earth. Right? This is, they were like, we want to be part. We're going we're gonna to give whatever we have because we want to be a part. And he, this is him writing a letter to them, and it's one of his most gracious and grateful letters. And in it, he says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly because once again, you renewed your care for me. You were, in fact, concerned about me, but you lacked the opportunity to show it. And I don't say this out of need. In other words, he's saying, I'm not saying this because I need you to give me more. For I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know how to make do with little, and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need, I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. Still, you did well by partnering with me in my hardship. What is he able to do all things? What all things is he talking about? Read Philippians. The all things he's talking about is bringing the gospel to the Gentiles and establishing the church. The mission God has given him. He's able to do all those things with abundance or lack because God provides everything he needs. And he trusts that. So the question here, this is, this is how I would want to close with these thoughts. Is our treasure Christ and his mission? Or is that just a side quest in our life? Is our treasure Christ and what he is about? Or is that something we participate in in our spare time? when our primary mission gives us a break, gives us a chance. One of the great questions that I've heard asked that brings us to, to a point is this. Guys, would heaven be heaven for you if Jesus wasn't there? Now, what that means is, would heaven be heaven if all your closest family members and friends were there, all your favorite pets, every desire you've ever had, come to pass, every fantasy and dream that you've ever dreamed of, all sin and suffering gone, removed, no more fear, no more worry, just perfection. Everything you've ever dreamed and hoped for, everything that you could imagine. And the only thing that's missing is that Jesus won't be there with you while you're in heaven with all your family and friends and loved ones and joy and everything. And this is just an introspective question for you to ask. Would that still be heaven to you if the only thing was missing was Jesus? And so you think through that and really let your heart wrestle with that and say this, would heaven be heaven if none of that was there and only Jesus was there? Would heaven still be heaven to you? Here's the challenge. We've found our satisfaction, and I want, this, I want you to relate this to giving, because here's how it relates to me, for me, right? I give to the church of God and the mission that Christ is on, because I believe that's what God is doing on the earth. And I give, 
wherever I feel like God tells me to give. And it's not always easy. Half the time, it's not easy. But I can't imagine making the decision to not give if I even have a hint that I think it's God. Because all I picture is that money eroding and, and destroying everything else, like sitting in my account and just corroding like acid right through the bottom, like, like when the Israelites tried to store up manna for the next day in their tent, and it, and it corrupted because it was a representation of their lack of trust in the promises of God. And God said, go ahead, do that. Watch me demonstrate to you what that will do. And so every time I, I get challenged and I, it hurts, right? And I know, like, Melanie is the, the person that does our finances in the family, in the home, right? And I know, like, she's in the same boat with me, right? Like, we're both, like, we're trying to, we're trying to do stuff that we think God has put in our hearts and it takes money to do. And we're like, oh, okay. And I'm like, oh, I got I to gotta talk to Melanie about this. I better be sure in my own heart before I talk to her because she's going to respond the same way I initially responded. And I'll go to her and it's the same response. And you're like, but what if we didn't? Right? And oftentimes because she's the administrator of the finance, she's like, yeah, but if we give, what about this? How are we going to do this? How are we going to do this? I'm like, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) But what if it's God really asking us? And after a long conversation, short conversation, it's always like, all right, let's, let's give it. Let's give it. All right, so how much are we giving? <laughs> okay, <laughs> right? Uh, that type of scenario. But I'm telling you, it's all, even though it's, it's hard because we're, we're not perfected yet, this is what it comes down to for us when we make our final decision. What if it is God asking us? How about this? What if it wasn't God asking you to do it, but you did it because you believed it was God asking you? You think God's going to say, you fool, you're going to deal with the consequences now. You missed it. If he did, I'd be homeless. Do you understand? He has provided for me my entire life in abundance, in ignorance. And so when it comes to this, This is what the challenge is for us. We found our satisfaction, our contentment, and our fulfillment in the gifts instead of the gift giver, right? Abraham, and this was the wrap-up point. See, the worship team's up there. They already have a song ready and everything. All right. All right. No. I can't. No. There's like, no. All right. I'm just going to read it. Abraham found his satisfaction in the gift giver and not the gifts, including his son, his wealth, and his health, because gifts are expressions of his love and provision, not competitors for his affection. And if they are, don't expect them. Abraham's story Israel wrap up. I was going to go into like the bread and the wine and the the deck and everything. I know it was going to be so good. It was going to be so good. C.S. Lewis said this. All right. I really am going to close. I have to. I'm sorry. C.S. Lewis said the settled happiness and security which we all desire. God withholds from us 
by the very nature of the world. This is why we're, we get worried about provision. The very nature of the world is that everything is finite and runs out. Our sources, our resources, they're finite, they run out. So we feel the need to store more and more to protect against them running out. This is the history of humanity. And he's saying God withholds from us by the very nature of the world the settled happiness and security which we desire. But joy, pleasure, and merriment he has scattered a broadcast. We are never safe, but we have plenty of fun and even some ecstasy. It is not hard to see why. The security we crave would teach us to rest our hearts in this world and oppose an obstacle to our return to God. But a few moments of happy love, a beautiful landscape, a symphony, a merry meeting with our friends, a nice bath or a football game, they have no such tendency to do so. Our Father refreshes us on the journey with pleasant inns, but will not encourage us to mistake them for home. Do you understand his point there? He's saying God is all about giving us good and pleasurable experiences, but he will never allow you to find security in this world because he does not want you to get tempted to think this is home. He wants you to get tastes, to be able to taste and see and imagine and be fueled for home. And that's the power of the Abraham story, guys. Abraham shows up to fight a battle with his limited resources because his nephew is taken captive and he wins the battle and these kings come out and one of the kings is this guy named Melchizedek and he's from a place called Salem which later we get to know as Jerusalem the city of God and it says that he is a priest of the most high God and he comes out to meet Abraham and this really cool thing maybe we'll get into later but the first thing he does is brings out the bread and the wine and he serves Abraham. And there's this exegetical principle that, that is pretty powerful called the law of first mention and applies here. It's really cool. We see the bread and the wine for the very first time. And it's being served for the very first time by a priest of the order that Christ comes from. It is the foreshadow of Christ, the representative of Christ to Abraham here. And he serves the bread and the wine, the body and the blood, the communion of Christ the representation of God on the earth here. And Abraham's response to partaking in the bread and the wine is to voluntarily and cheerfully give a tenth of everything he has. And he gives it in response to that. And the very next thing that happens is Melchizedek blesses him. And right after that, this is what happens. The kings... The secular kings of the world, they try to give Abraham all the, the bounty of the battle. They say to him, give us just our people and you keep all the reward. And this was the reward of nine kingdoms combined. It's money. It's stupid money, guys. It's money that you couldn't count. You couldn't fathom in your lifetime. It's nine kingdoms wealth come together. All yours, Abraham. Thank you for just saving our people. And Abraham, faced with this decision, please don't skim over it like a super spiritual person. Let's just pick a number so we can like put our... Abraham is offered $3 billion. And he has just 
gotten his family going. He's got just enough people to come and help fight a battle. He's not super wealthy yet. Three billion dollars put in front of him. And he says, no, you keep your money. And you're like, Abraham, why? What are you doing? Do you know how much good that money could do, buddy? And he says, because I made a promise to the Lord, and I will not allow you to say you made Abraham great and wealthy. So therefore, you keep it, but just give my men what they've already eaten and their portion of it. And that's when the chapter ends. Right there, it ends. And you're like, wow, that was noble. But the very next verse in chapter 15, verse 1, is Abraham alone and God speaking directly to him. And he says, Abraham, don't worry. Well, what would Abraham be worrying about? That he just passed up $3 billion because he decided to put his trust in God. And so God says, Abraham, don't worry. I will be your shield and your exceedingly great reward. Some other translations translate it as, I will be your shield and your reward will be exceedingly great. And Abraham becomes the father of the kingdom of God, right? The father of the faith, the father of the people that God then launches into his whole point. This is Abraham. This is the beauty of what it means to give. This is a supernatural lifestyle, guys, and this is the challenge. Abraham gave to someone who was greater than him in that moment, the priest of God who bore the bread and the wine. And Paul tells us about Melchizedek and ties this together and says that Christ is a priest in the order of Melchizedek and that even the priests of Levi who were in Abraham's bosom at the time were tithing to the greater priesthood in that moment in Melchizedek. Because it's the greater priesthood that we are offered to partake in and be a part of and that we give our lives towards, including our money. And when the church sees this and gets a hold of, hey, I live and breathe and use all my resources, including our money, to further the purposes and cause of Christ and his mission on the earth. That's huge. Okay? And then we see this principle here, guys. That if we really believe we're part of the mission of God and part of the family of God on the earth, and we're part of a local expression of that, and we want to see the mission of God burst forth in the kingdom, then we need to start living this supernatural way and giving giving for real, giving sacrificially, giving generously to all because God loves a cheerful giver. Do we understand that? And again, I told you I'd be saying things that would bother people, hurt people, touch people, whatever. But I'm just telling you, if there's something in your heart that says, oh yeah, I don't give to the church that I'm rooted and grounded in and part of a mission for, there's a disconnect in your heart and you need to work it out But if you're fully on board and you believe God is doing something here in our midst and you're not giving everything you can to that purpose and that call, the question is why? That's all. The question is why? We have things God wants to do that we believe he's birthed in the heart for this mission and this purpose. And the only thing that's limiting us right now 
is time and money. That's it. And we believe God can provide from trees and from rocks and from birds and from the ground. But we also believe that God is after the reward that is on your benefit. When you start to live this way and you start to see these things. Do you understand? There is a reward. There is a work of God, a supernatural lifestyle that he wants you to begin to walk in and live in. And this is where the rubber meets the road. You can say you're living a supernatural life because you give your time and your energy. And those are awesome. We all need to be doing that. But if you don't give your money towards where you say your mission is and your heart is and your drive and your vision, the scriptures seem to say there's a disconnect there. This is the challenge to supernatural living, and this is why I said this at the beginning. Because if you are not living supernaturally with your finances, your heart's not in the kingdom. There's not that trust that God will provide and give and, and, and give you this. I tell Melanie all the time, we joke about it, like, I loved living supernaturally in my ignorance. When I was young, I just threw myself into full-time ministry. Couldn't care less how I was going to get money. I just said, God's going to provide. And he did. In awesome, cool ways, but it was stressful ways, and I had to wait every month. Oh, am I going to have enough? Ooh, and some guy would give a check for $1,000, and our bills would be paid. Someone else would come around, and friends would, would support us in large chunks every month. It was really cool. Melanie didn't think so. <laughs> At the time, she, it stressed her out. And then we had a kid, and I was like, no, I'm not giving this up. But in hindsight, I don't think God called me to be in full-time ministry at that time. But he provided for me anyway. He provided for me in my ignorance. Do you understand? He provided for me because my heart was after his kingdom and his righteousness first. And he is still providing for me abundantly. And we look back and we're like, how did we get to where we are now? We don't know. But all I can say is, God, I'm so grateful. Don't let me get lost in this. And so that's what I want to challenge us here today, guys. I know it's not a super spiritual message and challenge, but it is a supernatural message and challenge. Because you're only going to be able to separate from your source of, of provision and safety supernaturally. So let's just pray right now. I just want to give God a chance to do this in your heart.